0: Well, it's it's an absolute joy to be here this morning. It's every Sunday it's such a joy to, to gather with my brothers and sisters here and to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. But to be able to preach today just makes today all the more sweet to me. And Jake's introduction of me went better than I expected. I thought for sure he was gonna say something embarrassing. So I'm happy that he didn't do that. But I am so excited to continue in our series on church planting that we started last week, based out of Matthew chapter nine, specifically verses 35 to 38. There are few things that are nearer and dearer to my heart in this season of life than this topic of church planting. If you don't know me, like Jake said, my name is Adam, I'm married to Claire, we're the Pennards, and I hope to be a part of a church plant in the North Manchester area in the next couple of years. My wife Claire and I, like Jake mentioned, we're actually about to be sent to the Sovereign Grace Pastors College, which is in Louisville, Kentucky. It's about a year program; it's ten months, um, with the purpose of receiving more training and more preparation in pastoral ministry and in church planting. And we actually leave in just a few weeks on August 15th. So I think August 14th is our last Sunday. That's that we'll be here for a little while. But yeah, the Lord began placing a burden on my heart for the town of North Manchester a couple years ago. And actually, while I was living all the way in South Carolina is when this whole process happened, started. It's kind of a long story, but I'd love to explain it sometime if you wanna get a meal and I'll tell the whole story of, of how the Lord moved in this situation. So I'm honored to, to be able to be here today and to preach on the message of church planting. Next week, we'll take a look at the laborers in the harvest and then We'll look at the Lord of the harvest after that. And then lastly, we'll wrap up talking about the method of church planting. And my prayer as we go through this series, as we continue it even today, is that God would use this series, that he would move by the power of his spirit through his word to maybe even call some of us here today to consider being a part of the work that God is doing in North Manchester and that we're aiming to do in that town. And further, to shape us as Christ Covenant Church, to shape us into a church who loves to plant. If you weren't here last week or if you just forget, Mark kicked off our series on, on preaching on the motivation of church planting and reminded us that church planting efforts must be mov- motivated by compassion for the lost. I don't know about you, but he had me fired up last week. Christ had compassion on the shepherdless sheep, and this should be our heartbeat in church planting as well. Compassion for those who are apart from Christ should drive us to church planting endeavors. That should be our motivation. So if compassion is our motivation, what then is our message? As we look out into our communities, our own community here or neighboring communities, and we see people shepherdless, harassed, and helpless, what must be our response? When we are motivated to plant a church by compassion for the lost, what then must our message be? What is the message of church planting? Let's read Matthew chapter 9, if you haven't already turned there. Matthew chapter 9 Verses 35 to 38 to find our answer from the word of God. It reads, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father God, we thank you for this day that you've given us to gather, to praise your name, to sit under the teaching of your word God, we thank you that you had compassion on us. Shepherdless sheep, that you saved us from our sin, that you made us, your enemies, into your friends. I ask that today as we look at this passage and as we discuss the topic of the message of the church plant, I ask that you would drive your word into our hearts. That you would use your word to spark zeal in us, to proclaim Christ to those who are around us. God, I even ask that you would move some in this room to be burdened to go, whether it be close or whether it be far, that you would reveal yourself as glorious and gloriously worth of all sacrifice. We pray these things in our Savior Christ's name. Amen. So this passage has much to say to us on the topic of church planting. And specifically on the topic of the message of church planting, verse 35 especially has much to say to us. So I'm going to read verse 35 again. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So here Jesus provides us with our example par excellence of how we should go about this most important ministry of church planting. In chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, which we just read, Jesus does the work. Now drop down in your Bible to chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, and I'll read these verses. Look for some similarities in in language to what Jesus just did. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out, the 12 disciples Jesus sent out, instructing them Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in chapter 9, which is where we're at, Jesus does, and then in chapter 10, we see Jesus sending to do the same. So we, as Christ's disciples, are sent to do as he has done. So inevitably, this passage should shape the way that we understand and the way that we go about church planting. And as we explore this, it will be apparent to us that the proclamation of the gospel is the seed of the church plant. This is, this is our big point today, that the proclamation of the gospel is the seed of the church plant. Now I don't think that there are many, if any people in this room today that would disagree with that statement. Yes, Jesus preached the gospel, amen, and we can go to lunch. Not quite. Yes, Jesus preached the gospel, but let's dwell on this for a minute. Let's, let's soak in this for a bit. Jesus's intense compassion for shepherdless sheep led him to preach the gospel to them. Not to do something else, but to preach the gospel. So. Let's put this verse and this statement under the interrogation light for a bit and ask it some questions to more clearly understand that the proclamation of the gospel is the seed of the church plant. We'll ask three questions today. First, we'll ask, what does it mean to proclaim? When it says that we should proclaim the gospel, what does it mean to proclaim? Second, we'll ask, what is the gospel? What are we supposed to proclaim? What is it that we are proclaiming? And third, we'll ask, what happens when we do it? When we proclaim the gospel, what happens when we do it? So first, what does it mean to proclaim? This is probably a word that most of us don't really use on a daily basis. I was struggling to even think of an example of when I would say the word proclaim in a normal conversation. But the only real example that I can think of of how we use the word proclaim today is kind of in a presidential proclamation, where a president announces information on a policy or honors somebody or addresses current events and so on. I don't pay a, I don't pay a ton of attention to the, to the world of politics, but these are fairly common presidential proclamations. In the last two months, uh, our president has issued eight of them. So they're a fairly common thing, these presidential proclamations. Um, some, some of them explain the significance of a holiday that has just happened or is coming up, and some were honoring the death of victims in a shooting or honoring the death of a prominent world leader. So in our vernacular today, we might use the word proclaim as announcing something or declaring something, which isn't far off from, the, it's not far off from how the Bible uses it. And this word that we translate as proclaim, it's used in the New Testament some 60 times, and its use is really very consistent across different authors and different genres and different settings and different people doing the proclaiming. For instance, Matthew 4, verse 17 says that Jesus began to preach, or proclaim, it's the same word here, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1, 7 says of John the Baptist, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So John the Baptist proclaimed the arrival of the Lamb of God. Luke 8, verse 1, says that soon afterward he, meaning Jesus here, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. So Jesus proclaimed good news. Acts 8.5, our last one here that we'll look at, is Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So Philip proclaimed Christ. So to proclaim, in the New Testament sense of the word, is to announce something to other people. It's to herald, it's to announce, it's to trumpet, it's to declare And what Jesus is heralding, what Jesus is announcing, what Jesus is trumpeting here in Matthew 9 as he goes to new places, to new towns and new villages, what he is proclaiming is himself. He is heralding the good news of himself. So the proclaiming that Jesus is doing in this passage is much more significant than a president explaining the the meaning of a holiday. It's more like a proclamation trumpeting the end of a war. And this type of heralding and trumpeting means that, it doesn't mean that we bully people with the good news of Jesus Christ, right? How paradoxical would that be? Yes, we preach repentance of sin. Yes, we call people to live according to God's standard, but we don't lord the good news of the gospel over anyone. We, like Christ, proclaim out of compassion, never out of frustration. This is a heralding of good news for the helpless, which includes us. At the the other end of the spectrum, to proclaim also doesn't mean that we merely suggest Christ to people. We must never have a take it or leave it type of mentality as we proclaim Christ to people who stand as enemies of God. There is an urgency, there is authority in this good news of Christ, and this must come through in our proclamation. Ray Ortland he explains this idea well. He says that to proclaim is not to beg as if he, meaning Jesus, were poor, not suggest as if he were doubtful, not propose as if he were the premise of something larger, but proclaim as the only life that is truly life, accessible to everyone on terms of grace, received with the empty hands of faith, giving all, demanding all. When we see people in our communities who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, our compassion must drive us to proclaim Christ, to herald him, to announce him, to trumpet him. I was thinking this week how I'm not really a huge fan of our modern evangelical language of sharing the gospel or sharing Christ. Nowhere in scripture does God speak of evangelism in that way. I don't think it's a wrong thing to say, per se. I've said it probably hundreds of times. We are, in fact, sharing out of the bounty of the riches of kindness that God has lavished on us in Christ, that is true. But the language of sharing, at least to me, seems a little bit passive. It seems a little careful, it seems maybe concessionary. I think it would do us well to understand that the verb of what we're to do with the gospel of Christ is to proclaim it, not merely to share it. But our world doesn't care much for proclamation, does it? it, Proclamation implies a claim to truth. It necessitates a response. And as we seek to plant a church in the North Manchester area, Lord willing, I anticipate that our proclamation of the gospel, not merely our sharing or our suggesting, but our proclamation of the gospel will be met with some pushback. A year or so ago, I talked with the pastor of a church in a neighboring community of North Manchester, and he shared an interaction that he had with a pastor of one of the Manchester community churches who came to him and said you can't really tell me that Jesus is the only way to heaven. You can't tell me that he is the only way to heaven, implying or maybe even explicitly stating that the thought of it was absurd, that Jesus would be the explicit way. Proclaiming the truth of Christ will inevitably ruffle some feathers of those who don't know him. But honestly, this is to be expected anywhere that we proclaim Christ. Not just here in our town, not in North Manchester, not abroad. It's to be expected everywhere we proclaim Christ. Even in the context of this passage that we're looking at today in Matthew, we see it. In Matthew chapter 9, as we looked at, we see Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Then in chapter 10, as I noted earlier, Jesus sends his disciples out to do the same. And then just a little bit further in chapter 10, if you still have your Bibles open there, take a look at verse 16 Jesus warns them that opposition will come. There will be opposition to their proclamation of the gospel. And in verse 22, Jesus even explicitly says that you will be hated by all for my name's sake. This must not cause us to shy away from proclaiming Christ. We must not suggest, we must not Bully, we must not share in a weak or in an uncertain sense, but we must herald the good news of Christ come for sinners. Now, to do that obviously requires a knowledge of that which we're heralding, right? It's difficult, it's maybe even impossible, to proclaim something that we don't understand ourselves. For any fans of the show The Office, it would be like Michael Scott in, in the office shouting, I declare bankruptcy. And as Oscar reminds him right afterwards, he says, you can't expect to just say the word bankruptcy and expect anything to happen. Similarly, if when we're sent, to, when we're sent out to proclaim the gospel, all we say is, I proclaim the gospel, or I proclaim Christ, we haven't really proclaimed anything at all. We if, we, if that's all we say, we haven't proclaimed anything at all. We must understand ourselves what the gospel is in order to proclaim it effectively. So that's our second question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? What is it that we are sent to proclaim? In our Matthew 9 passage, it says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It's important to understand here that the word gospel just means good news. It simply means good news. For Christians, for us, the word gospel has taken a more technical, uh, has become a more technical term with a narrower meaning than it had in the time of writing the New Testament. In the early church era, era it was a frequently used word denoting good news, often especially in regard to military victories. So when Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, he is proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come to earth through him. The work that Jesus is doing in teaching, healing, and soon in the book of Matthew, in his dying and rising from the grave is the good news of the kingdom. King Jesus has come and is establishing his reign on the earth but the way that he goes about inaugurating his kingdom on earth was an unexpected one for most people in that day and maybe for us today. Because this king of kings came to lay his life down for his people. He took the punishment of sin that we deserve, though he deserved none, and put it to death on the cross. And he rose again that we would be righteous and walk in new life in him. That is what we proclaim, and the glory of it is why it's worthy of proclamation. My wife and I were in Canada last week, yeah, I think it was just last week, helping at a music camp uh, at one of the churches in our region of Sovereign Grace churches, and we stayed with an awesome family that hosted us for the whole week. It was very generous of them. And the mother of the family, she, she showed us a cool, simple way that she teaches her kids how to remember the simple gospel, what the gospel is, by using just one hand. So it's simply Christ died for our sins and rose again. And you're supposed to do that with your hand at that part. Christ died for our sins and rose again. And that might sound overly simplistic, but it really is as simple and as beautiful as that. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins and rose again. And this is what we proclaim. We call people to trust in this God who has made a way for rebels, like you and me, enemies to God. He has made a way in Christ for rebels to enter into his kingdom. So we proclaim as Jesus did in Mark 1 verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If we have repented and believed in the gospel, then we are called then to go out and to proclaim that same gospel of forgiveness of sins in Christ and new life in Christ. If that's not you, and you have not trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sins, then as you hear this gospel proclaimed to you today, I call on you to repent and believe in the gospel today. So what happens when this gospel is proclaimed? That's our third question. What happens when the gospel is proclaimed? We know that we are meant to proclaim the gospel and what we're meant to proclaim is the gospel, but what happens when we do it? When the gospel is proclaimed, what happens? The apostle Paul gives us our answer to this question in Romans chapter 1 where he tells them that he's eager to go to Rome to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. And in verse 16, he says, For, or because, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. When the gospel is proclaimed, God saves people. By his miraculous grace, he uses the words of people like you and me to make enemies into friends, to make orphans into sons and daughters. He makes the dead alive. And this is something that we pray in our North Manchester planting group every time we meet, that God would bring dead people to life in our town. When the gospel is proclaimed by us, God saves people. And when God saves people, a local church is formed which is why I say that the proclamation of the gospel is the seed of the church plant. In a way, our language of church planting is a little bit imprecise. A church is not so much what is planted, but what is grown by God. If we want to plant churches, what we really need to plant is the seed of the gospel in our communities. I'm not a gardener or a farmer by any stretch of the imagination, but I know enough to know that if I am trying to grow squash, I'm not going to plant a brick. If I'm trying to grow some jalapenos, I'm not gonna bury a wrench in the dirt. And if, and if we're trying to grow a church in a community, we must not plant anything except the gospel of Jesus Christ. By God's power, The seed of the gospel results in the flower of the church. And Jesus, he illustrates this in a parable in Mark chapter four, verses 26 to 29. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. We scatter the seed of the gospel day after day, and night after night we go to sleep trusting that God does the work. We proclaim the good news of salvation offered in Christ, and God, God alone, grows those seeds into a harvest. And this is why we proclaim the gospel because the proclamation of the gospel is the seed of the church plant. And we do well to follow the example of our master to go into different and to new areas and proclaim, to herald, to announce, to trumpet the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, trusting that God will give the growth. So what do, we, what do we do with this? Yes, hopefully, hopefully we are reinvigorated to proclaim the gospel as our Savior modeled and commissioned us to do. But it's also worth noting what we are not to do in church planting endeavors. Jesus proclaimed the gospel, but there are also at least two things that I think worth worth mentioning that Jesus didn't do and that I believe we therefore shouldn't do as well as we seek to establish churches in North Manchester or Papua New Guinea or anywhere else around the globe. Two things that Jesus didn't do and that we therefore shouldn't. First, we must never proclaim without gospel. What I mean by that is that if we are not proclaiming the gospel, there is nothing that we should proclaim. My wife and I got a, got a dog this past week and she is the most adorable thing in the world and she brings so much joy, but I don't proclaim her cuteness. I might tell you about it more than you wanna hear, but I am not proclaiming her cuteness. There is the only thing that has the importance and the magnitude and the urgency of requiring proclamation is the gospel message itself. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that is more worthy of proclamation than the good news of Christ. So let us say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. But what might we be tempted to proclaim other than Christ? Or what might we drift toward proclaiming if we don't handcuff ourselves to the preaching of the gospel? I think there are many, but just a few for instance, that might rear their ugly head. One, we might be tempted to proclaim ourselves. Our propensity toward pride is dangerous, isn't it? How quickly we can forget how miraculous the gift of salvation is. We begin to see ourselves as the one creating disciples or as the ones building a church. And soon enough, we may begin to proclaim ourselves as Lord in our hearts, while paying only lip service to the king. We must humble ourselves before God and proclaim the gospel of Christ. Or another another one that we might be tempted to proclaim is politics. In an age of political outrage, our minds might become so shaped by the news and by social media that our political agenda usurps our proclamation of the gospel. And just as a litmus test, ask yourself, what do you speak of more? Do you speak of what? a politician has done to help you or to hurt you, or what Christ has done for you. I think we can quickly become more consumed by our political agenda than by the gospel of Christ. Or another thing we might be tempted to proclaim is self-actualization. And this is particularly dangerous in my opinion because it places the focus of our proclamation directly on the place that it shouldn't be, on ourselves. It is Christ that we proclaim, not some innate potential to become our best selves with a little bit of help from God. Every person on this planet has no ultimate hope outside of Christ the Savior. And to appeal to any false hope outside of him is to fail in our task. We might be tempted to proclaim, or we might be tempted to to soften the offense of the gospel, by softening it with just a bit of self-help. But may God give us the grace to proclaim only the gospel and nothing else, that he would keep us from proclaiming ourselves, a political agenda, human potential, or anything else that distracts from the gospel. Only Christ and him crucified and risen. The second thing that Jesus didn't do and what we therefore shouldn't is he didn't, this might, sound, this might look confusing when you see it. He didn't gospel, and I mean that as a verb, or to bring good news, or to do good things without proclaiming Christ. He didn't gospel without proclaiming. If you hate the wording of that, change it in your notes. That's fine. I'm not tied to it. He healed, yes. He went from town to town. He didn't just heal as he went from town to town, but his healing was in direct connection to and in support of his proclamation. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is in, for, for example, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is in Capernaum, and he's healing just tons of people. So many people that he was having a hard time getting away from it all for some time alone. And his disciples eventually found him, and they came to him and said, everybody is looking for you. They, they want more of what you've been doing. They want, there's more people to be healed But Jesus responds to them and says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. No matter how many miraculous things Jesus did, his focus was on the proclamation of the gospel, not on the works that supported it. There's this terrible quote, you've probably heard it before, that makes its way around Christian circles sometimes that is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. You probably already have it in your mind after I say that. He reportedly said, preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. But there's just a few problems with that quote. First, he didn't say it. Second, there's no indication that he lived like that. And third, it's just simply not biblical. The gospel is inherently word oriented. Preaching the gospel requires actual proclamation. Yes, the gospel should be adorned by good works that are done in the power of the Spirit, but the gospel is not those works. And we know this. When you, when you pay for someone's meal behind you in the drive through line, you don't go away and think, man, I really did a good job preaching the gospel to that person today. That's a good work, but you're not proclaiming the gospel. Or when you're patient with a difficult child, You're exhibiting a fruit of the Spirit, but you have not proclaimed Christ in the biblical sense. Proclaiming the gospel means heralding the good news of Christ with your words. Speak of Christ crucified on behalf of sinners. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, Jesus provides us with his example of what the message of the church plant must be. He directs us to proclaim the gospel. Because the proclamation of the gospel is the seed of the church plant. We don't merely suggest Christ or share Christ in a weak or uncertain sense, but we proclaim him. And what we proclaim is the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. God has provided a way for rebels like you and me, to enter into his kingdom, and that is what we proclaim to shepherdless sheep. When we proclaim the gospel, God works by the power of his spirit and saves people. We plant the seed of the gospel by proclaiming it and trust that God will grow his church. And this is what we hope to do in North Manchester. This is the task that I pray captures our hearts and our affections. The kingdom of God has come in Christ, and God graciously empowers people like us to expand his reign through the planting of churches, both domestically and internationally. May God give us the grace to be faithful in our task. Let's pray. Father God, Your word is sweet to us. Your gospel is salvation to us. We thank you that you have brought your kingdom to us in Christ, that he would take our punishment, that he would make us into sons and daughters, and that we would be right and reconciled with you, God. I ask that as you have reconciled us to yourself, that you would use us as instruments to reconcile others to you as well through Jesus Christ. I ask that your glory would be our motivation as we go, as we send, as we minister, as we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Lord, handcuff handcuff us to the glory of your gospel, that we would proclaim it with boldness, with, with clarity and with power that your Holy Spirit would save people. We pray these things in our holy and precious Savior's name, amen.